This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 26, 2023. I'm Scott Delonaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, freedom of information fees, the cost of a coronation, a detour through Alberta, and rockets and tanks. First, as always, thank you to the, I don't know, 75-odd people who support us on Patreon. You can join them at patreon.com slash Get in our Slack, keep the show going, and help us build through 2023. Let's start in British Columbia today. The God, there's nothing happening again this week, but we found some something to talk about, and hence we'll get yeah, into the a, stuff in Alberta later. But it's a slow news week this week. So let's start with a report from the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner on the first six months of being charged uh, FOI fees in the province. Through this report, we have learned that the province has collected $15,360 in fees, most of that coming from individuals, about 6000 another 4900 from political parties, 1300 from businesses, and 1000 from the media. Uh, this looks largely at the 24 uh, agencies, the bodies that are charging fees, uh, and that's of 109. So thankfully, only a quarter are charging fees, just under, and Michael McAvoy, the Privacy Commissioner recommends those not charging a fee continue to do so, to continue not charging a fee. He didn't like the fee in the first place, so fair enough. Did anyone that wasn't uh, named John Horgan? Um, some of the people in caucus had to say they liked it. Uh, so, looking into those 24 that are charging a fee, uh, the report compares how many access to information requests were received in two six-month periods prior to the fee coming in to the six-month period after. And this isn't a strong enough data set to do a real statistical analysis, but just looking at the political parties, the BC, and this is BC Liberals and Greens filing FOI fees because the NDP doesn't need to FOI themselves and their own government, we see that the number of fees went from 2000, the number of applications for FOIs among these 24 agencies went from 2,646 and 1,240 in the first two periods. And then after the fee was brought in, it dropped to 518. So less than half the number of fees or applications for information were being made. Uh, similarly, for the media, there were 318 and 575 requests, respectively, and that dropped to 118. Uh, we don't have it broken down by how many were Bob Mackin, though. Well, I would hope he'd be categorized under the individual rather than the media list, but uh, no word on that in the uh, report. But uh, yeah, what, what's pretty clear from it, though, is that uh, the effect has been to decrease the access to information by basically all the bodies out there that are exist to keep the government accountable namely opposition parties in the media. And like, there could be a reasonable explanation for a drop that wasn't just shuttering of access to information if 
we had more just proactively public information, but I don't know of any anecdotal stories or evidence that that has happened. And so this is relatively definitive evidence that the thing everyone said was going to happen happened. Now, even the government said there's too many frivolous requests. So maybe all the frivolous requests are gone and just the, the good, important ones are coming through. We're not finding out about the like cost of a white spot meal paid by the premier. Yeah, but at the same time, though, like when you're in government, a lot of things can seem frivolous that actually aren't. Oh, I would agree. Uh, so not not a stunning review of the FOI fees from the uh, office that was highly critical of them. But even if we assume, fine, we're going to have FOI fees, uh, the report really digs into the fact that they're not working great. Um, it comes out with five recommendations on how to make this awful system slightly less awful. And one of the things really flagged in here is that there's just a lack of coordination or policies across even these bodies that do have the fees in place. So one of the tables I pulled out into our show notes is how many of these 24 public bodies accept different payment methods? Because you would think if there is a fee, you could just go to the BC government's, you know, payment processor, which they have, and use your credit card, or you could send a check to someone, or you could, I don't know, take cash to someone's desk or something. Though that one seems the People most People still sketchy. use cash? Uh, I'm sure if you want to remain entirely anonymous. But what we find in here is there's not one public body that accepts every kind of payment method. Uh, my default would be credit card, but that's only accepted at 13 of these public bodies. The most common payment method that's accepted is checks at 22. Because apparently the government's still working from the 1980s. I mean, my child care provider is, but like, that's I, I literally only ever write a check to cover rent. Yeah. That's basically it. And come on, it's 2023. Like, it does not take very long to set up a a payment processor these days like spend the 10 minutes and get a stripe going if you really have to or use the government's existing one but like there is no reason you can't take a credit card payment over the internet at this point what i also really love is more places accept money orders 13 different bodies than e-transfers which is only seven or cash or debit which is another seven so if you want to pay this foi fee it looks like you have to have your checkbook ready if you still have one. So this all comes down into the recommendations McAvoy puts at the end of his report. Number one, there should be a coherent policy across government for when fees are transferred between or when requests are transferred between public bodies as to who collects the fee. Because right now you might file an FOI with the Ministry of Education, and they go, oh, actually, you want records that are at the Ministry of Health. Uh, but we don't know who should charge you the 10 bucks. This is basic shit. Yeah, you, you figured they would have got that figured out early on, particularly because it wasn't like there were no payments that ever happened in the FOI system. It was just, okay, when you go to retrieve the records, if it takes longer than whatever the def the amount that was just a freebie under it was, you had to pay for that extra work. So it wasn't even like they weren't able to collect this before. And like, why not just copy paste that same policy on the people doing the work are the ones that get paid. Uh, recommendation two, 
Public bodies that administer a fee for general records should clearly inform applicants without delay when a fee applies. Another just like you shouldn't need to publish your prices. You need to recommend that. That should be obvious. Uh, number three, you must ensure the time limit to respond is not suspended when they fail to notify the applicant of the requirement to pay the fee. So, in other words, they were not telling people that they owed money, but then. They just weren't doing any of the work either. They just sat there in and limbo. not holding themselves to the legislated time limits. Also bad. Uh, number four, accept more payment methods and also include ones that permit applicants to maintain anonymity. As we mentioned, not enough options above. Although, thinking back to the, like the times I, like the couple times I've done an FOI, there you have to put your name and contact information on it like i don't think there's actually a way to uh do an anonymous foi request because they actually have to tell you stuff and give it to you at the end so like that doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me i haven't read through the report or know the system inside and out enough i imagine maybe there's like a scenario where you're submitting either as a media organization without a named person, you're just using a generic email or something like that. Um, but I, like, I get the value of anonymity in terms of not wanting to, uh, I don't know, generate hostility from public agencies that maybe you feel you've been aggrieved by. But yeah, at very Maybe, least, accept like, more. I just public, don't think accept more payment fee options. <laughs> yeah, there should be more payments for sure. I just don't think it's actually logistically possible to do a completely anonymous application for this sort of and thing. And the fifth recommendation is there should be a policy outlining the circumstances for when they will charge or refund the fee. As in, right now, it's kind of just arbitrary, and some people have demanded a refund when they've not been able to get the records or like the application was denied or something and there's no refund policy so there you have it we have a half-baked scheme that everyone criticized at the time and turns out it's it's worse than yeah it's, it's more quarter baked at this point and considering this was all done in 2021 like the fall of 2020 we're over a year into this there's no reason you can't have a refund policy at this point it's just laziness at, on the part of the the government of like not actually doing the work to make any of this stuff make. And any none of sense. that requires legislation, right? These are all just internal policies. It's not even like high level cabinet recommendation or regulations. This is just like internal policies for various departments, and you know, the central part of government could recommend out to the entire civil service a standardized approach. I'm assuming. They have that for some aspects of government. I mean, neither of us have worked in government, so we don't know it inside out. Maybe it is all just chaos, and that's a terrifying thought. While we're talking about financial numbers, let's talk about the Elections BC release of the fundraising data from the BC NDP leadership race. Now, as astute listeners will recall, there was only one official candidate in the end, so we only have data from David Eby, who is now Premier. Uh, but we know who gave him money and how much he raised. Yeah, so he brought in 
338,000. Uh, this is notably less than the 820,000 raised by Kevin Falcon in his leadership race. The spending ceiling was a lot less for the BC NDP. I think it's worth remembering. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but he wouldn't have had to raise as much. Um, but I don't think he raised the ceiling that he could have spent. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, we don't know how much Anjali Apadurai raised because she was disqualified. Um, but it is, yeah, notable that, you know, he only got 338000 Um A lot of that money came from cabinet members and caucus members. A lot of them were donating the maximum $1,309. This included Brenda Bailey, Jennifer Whiteside, Kat. Katrine Conroy, Mike Farnworth, Mike Murray Rankin, Ann Kang, Bruce Ralston, Andrew Mercier, Adam Walker, Dan Coulter. Uh, Ravi Calone was a little bit cheap. He only gave 1300 He couldn't find another $9 to max out his donation. And maybe just like round numbers. Uh, so the campaign spending limit was 350000 So There you go. Came up a little short. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Dix gave 1039 that might have been a typo, though. Uh, a number of other NDP members forked out the maximum. Gary Begg, Kelly Green, Megan Dykeman, Mike Starchuk, Henry Yao, Brittany Anderson, and Finn Donnelly. Uh, other notables, former Mayor Kennedy Stewart gave quite a bit, uh, as well as Raj Sahoda, former NDP executive director. Uh, these names are mostly thanks to BC Today, who did most of the work looking through these. Uh, there's a number of high-profile consultants and, uh, you know, union negotiators in there, the kind of people you'd expect. Bill Tillman, 500 bucks. Mosa Hoda, $1,250. Basically, if you're an NDP insider, you probably donated the maximum to David Eby's campaign. Yeah, pretty much. Looks um, like he had around 300 unique donors. The list has 345. Oh, that would be people who gave over 200. So we don't have the small uh, amounts. I can't imagine the small amounts account for a huge amount of it. It's not like he was doing a bunch of fundraising events and going out and really doing a lot of campaign events where, you know, you'd pass around the hat for people to toss 20 butts in or whatever. So like, I'm sure a few came through his, the website and, but like, yeah, overall, here I pulled up the actual report itself. All that much. He claims 330 contributors gave, over 250 and 718 gave under 250. So about a thousand people signed up. So that, that remember back to our big controversy of how many did he sign up versus how many did Angeli Apadurai sign up? Here we have a pretty firm number that a thousand people were supporting him. And I think there was talk of how many what did the membership increase by like 14,000 or something undoubtedly there was a number uh, of other people that. who signed up but didn't necessarily also contribute to David Eby's campaign so like a thousand people supporting him is not nothing but it's also not <laughs> I don't know it's not a yeah not what you would expect if you were really gearing up for like the fight of your life to become premier. But again, he province. raised the ma near the maximum. It wouldn't have taken much more to hit three fifty. So it's a weird race where you're kind of in a situation where you need to raise. Eh. Anyway, it's what it is. We have nothing to compare it to. 
other than the BC Liberals, which was an entirely different race. Exactly. The much higher spending limit, yeah. And took an unreasonably long amount of time to... Gotta take go all that time to spend all that money. Well, and the last thing we'll flag on BC politics news is that former mayor of Victoria, Lisa Helps, has a new job. Yep, she was appointed as special advisor on housing uh, by the BC government. Uh, generally, from her term on the Victoria Council and as mayor, fairly pro-housing, decent voice to have in the around the Premier's office. There's a lot of people in Victoria who don't like her, but I don't know how much, like some of that is partisan she's too like woke or whatever and then there's another nimby part so i don't think the ndp cares about either of those constituencies too strongly um they have pegged her specifically to help design and develop the bc builds program that david eb's talked up a bit this is to quote build housing for middle income families individuals and seniors uh based on the missing middle housing initiative that just became law of the land in the city of victoria you know that could be a good start and finding ways to densify our cities and encourage more housing yeah good for her indeed uh, but she's not the only person with a new job finally the bc greens have a new second deputy leader uh their first yeah their first lisa is gunderson. uh lisa gunderson an academic i believe uh, the new deputy leader, I actually know personally, he performed two open heart surgeries on my daughter. This is Dr. Sanjiv Gandhi, the former head of pediatric cardiology surgery at BC Children's Hospital, is the second deputy leader of the Green Party of BC. Uh, for the past few months, he has been an outspoken critic of the province's approach to COVID-19 calling for more mask mandates and efforts to stem the tide, particularly uh, as pediatric cases of respiratory illnesses have come in. He's suggested more more needs to be done, and I, I don't disagree. He also has not decided whether or not he's going to be running in the next election, which, man, it's just really peaked green, isn't it? Uh, I think I saw something about how he decided to join the Greens because he wants to focus on policy and not politics, too. But that's not in this piece that we have here. <laughs> like, also I have very, immense very amounts green. of respect for Dr. Gandhi's like work as a surgeon, obviously. And I was devastated when he left BC Children's. And that story, not to rehash it entirely here, but was covered in the news. Basically, he was headhunted by BC Children's because he is a top surgeon and was able to open a kid's heart transplant um, approach at BC Children's. But like anyone who works on the hearts of babies and children, understandably or believably has al allegedly quite the ego uh, and can be hard to work with. He allegedly pushed out the other cardiac surgeon who was there suggesting he was not good enough. And maybe he wasn't up to the same standards. I don't know all the back and forth, but it was fought in the courts because the other guy was eventually 
uh, constructively dismissed, according to the courts. His hours were reduced. And yeah, the hospital admin fucked up is what the long and short of it is. They couldn't manage these two people. Uh, and so that person was given his job back. And then Dr. Gandhi said, well, I'm not staying if he's here. And now he's with the Green Party. So have fun with that. They have a type. The party. Yeah. They they definitely have a type, and the like. I want to work on policy rather than politics is keeping to that type, but also like fundamentally misunderstands how policy turn how policy ideas turn into actual policy outcomes, and you kind of need to win political power in order to be able to affect those. And if you're not, don't really want to run or do that kind of work it's not actually going to be all that helpful and if anything the greens could uh use maybe less policy development uh for their limited resources and actually put those resources towards being better at i mean there politics. is an element here where this is I know he's not a candidate and he may not even ever be one but a sort of star candidate yet like here's a high profile individual that attaches the greens to certain values in the ideological debates and so from that point of view there is value to this statement even if he is and i don't know maybe he does have a politically strategic mind and i just don't know it because i don't know him outside of a very specific context and a very intense context so at very least it signals you know the greens care about COVID policy, they care about uh, healthcare. Um, and it's those kind of things that the Greens are able to build beyond, and they've needed to do this for decades, right? They need to build beyond just being the party of the climate because everyone's adopting that. And being the party of healthcare in a time when the healthcare system is collapsing is a move, and a good move, reasonably. Whether they can pull it off remains to be seen. Yeah. Now, uh, his Twitter bio does list him as being located in West Vancouver, and West Vancouver Sea to Sky was the almost pickup by the uh, Greens in the last election. So it wouldn't be the worst spot to be located if he was to run as a star candidate. But the, eh, I don't know if I want to run kind of vibes given off here that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence oh, I, on I, that. I, I never. I, I think I knew he was on the North Shore. Um, I do know that he has done an event called the Triple Crown as a fundraiser for BC Children's Hospital Foundation in the past. This is where you bike all three mountains up and down, <laughs> like not to the top as high as the bike paths go, but in a day. So uh, he's quite fit and active in a way that I guess is common among many people in Metro Van. I don't know if that'll win him votes, but it didn't hurt when Trudeau ran up the gross grind. I hate it. Probably not going to be the thing that uh, mates or breaks the campaign. Well, speaking of going over mountains, let's cross the Rockies and go into Alberta. I want to touch in on some ridiculous stories that are coming out of that province. Uh, partially as filler, but also because it's my home province and these stories are ridiculous. So, first up, during 
her leadership race, uh, one of the things Daniel Smith was promising was to seek amnesty for, quote, individuals charged with nonviolent, non-firearms, pandemic-related violations. And I think she was largely thinking about uh, people involved in the Coots border blockade as part of the convoy movement, as well as some of the pastors who uh, held their church services in violation of COVID restrictions. Um, that's not controversial. I mean, well, that alone isn't controversial in the worst way. You can take that position and we can debate it and all of that. I think that was a dumb position. Uh, but what's come out now in two stories CBC has published over the last week, first on January 19th and then uh, yesterday on the 25th, is that Smith and her office have allegedly attempted to pressure the Attorney General Tyler Sandro and the prosecutor's office to specifically drop ongoing court cases related to the Coots border blockade and COVID charges. So really sticking to exactly what she promised only illegally, if these are true. Because as we learned in the SNC-Lavalin scandals, the head of government should stay the fuck away from the prosecutor's office and let them do their own job. So the first, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Particularly because, um, yeah, like it was bad when SNC-Lavalin did it. They, the provinces have even less control over this sort of thing. So... so the first story on January 19th, and I need to divide these stories up because uh, we'll get into why in a minute. But in the first story, CBC alleged that staffers in the premier's office sent a series of emails challenging prosecutors. Like they emailed the prosecution office, uh, challenging them, pushing them to drop the Coots charges or the charges against some of the people involved in the Coots border blockade. And in the second one, it alleges that Smith herself was calling and pressuring Tyler Shandro uh, asking him for updates, asking him if there are ways to drop these challenges. This spanned months. Uh, some of the case, some of the stuff specifically mentions Artur Palowski, a pastor who was charged with two counts of mischief related to the Coots border blockade. Now, he was charged under the Alberta Critical Infrastructure Act, or whatever it's called, the Don't Protest at Pipelines Act kind of thing, except he protested a border blockade, which is also critical infrastructure. Uh, Sucks to be you. Daniel Smith has maintained that all communications were above board and appropriate and like within the limits and didn't amount to pressure, but was just give me an update kind of stuff. Uh, she went further than that. And she released yesterday from Alberta.ca, the government website on letterhead, uh, a press release calling the first CBC story, the one about staffer in her office emailing the prosecutors, uh, she called that story defamatory and outrageous. She demanded it be retracted. She wanted CBC to apologize to her and her office. Um, it was wild. Uh, love to see the premier of a province accusing the media of defamation. Yeah, that's a shockingly strong way to do like, it's the sort of thing that if it was a more mainstream politician like would be a clear sign that they think they did absolutely nothing wrong to to make that sort of uh pretty clear and uh unambiguous statement because like if that 
doesn't hold up to scrutiny, it's going to make the whole situation a whole lot worse. I have not a lot of faith that Danielle Smith is necessarily the type of politician. I keep that's thinking going to of the scene in Arrested Development where uh, he's sitting in jail and just going, I have the worst fucking attorneys. And I feel like that's the premier of Alberta's office. Like, no one knows how the fuck to do their job. And they're just like throwing words around. Like, when we talk about, you know, issues with freedom of speech and freedom of the press in Canada, a government, the premier of a province, threatening a media organization should be high on our this is a concern list. Like, obviously, the media shouldn't lie or make stuff up. But it seems like they have a story here. Now, CBC admits they haven't seen the emails themselves. And so they're going on, you know, word of mouth, but they do have multiple sources in both cases. So this isn't just like one source with a fantastical tale. Um, it's a story to keep watching because Alberta's going to an election in a few months. And here we have allegations that the premier of Alberta doesn't care about the rule of law. Next up, and it's still related to COVID and Daniel Smith, the premier of Alberta has announced a new inquiry into how Jason Kenney handled COVID-19 and how the government of Alberta under his leadership managed things. And that's not too surprising. What I think is hilarious about this is that Preston Manning was appointed to lead this, former leader of the Reform Party of Canada, obviously. Um, but that's not even the best part. The best part is that Press Progress dug up that last year in May, <laughs> Preston Manning published a, quote, fictional futuristic description of relevant political developments in the post-COVID period in Canada. He basically wrote a fiction report that was dated June 5th, 2023, that tried to yeah. Uh, so 20, he wrote it last year as oh, though it right. was like it was as as if it was an actual report wild. from June of this year. <laughs> I mean, e everyone needs a hobby, and I guess fanfic writing is like Preston Manning this man, has done in his retirement. How did anyone ever take him seriously, or has he just gotten more unhinged? I like. Let's go with that. Let's just assume I that. I don't want to weirder. do the historical readings because I could probably prove he was always a bit unhinged, but like. Fair. Yeah. I, I didn't say there was uh, This no report was published with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. If you go through your, their website, you can figure out how wildly racist they are pretty quick. And just like, uh, they're a don't care about our treaties kind of place. Uh, this is the organization that also pitched like Alberta grabbing a piece of land through BC to the coast so they would have tidewater access. Yeah, Wait, that this like, was crazy them. map that went around uh, Very serious Twitter like four or five years ago, that one? Uh, so Press Progress, we'll throw the link <laughs> in the show notes, has some of their quotes from it, but uh, they describe it as saying, it imagines an entirely fictional future scenario where public health experts, academics, federal bureaucrats, and the mass media are called to account by a, quote, citizen-led commission, a scenario that has some eerie parallels with fantasies among COVID conspiracy theorists and the far right about a so-called, quote, Nuremberg 2.0. Um, and so it's basically just Preston Manning spitballing about how 
everyone was wrong about COVID and got like in on a conspiracy to force us to shut down the economy so that Justin Trudeau could great reset thing. Like, I'm I'm not reading it. It's just wild that it exists and that he has now been appointed to publish it seriously <laughs> by a government. How the notable have fallen. Alberta's uh, weird. And finally in Alberta is weird. Some people may remember that there's a party called the Alberta Party. It was the third party in the legislature for a while. They lost all their seats in the last election. Uh, they tried to be like a centrist, like not the Liberal Party of Alberta, but the Liberal Party of Alberta with better branding. Um, and they they were interesting for a while, but they've disappeared off everyone's radar for a while because they don't have any seats. And it's and I think they were being out fundraised by the pro life party, which is embarrassing in many ways. It's yeah, they yeah. There's a thing. I, yeah, that's a thing in Alberta. Anyway, the Alberta Party is in the news because they posted to their Instagram feed a video of what looked like a supporter saying, I endorse the Alberta Party because of blah, blah, blah. Um, and people pointed out, this looks like an AI-generated endorsement. like, And it was. And people questioned it, and then they decided to delete it. And then when it was pointed out they deleted it, they retweeted that saying, you're right, we did remove it but not because we were trying to hide anything. We tried something new. It turned out to be bad, so we decided to reshoot it with the real party members behind the message. When you make a mistake, you try and make it better. It's just... Do they have enough party members to actually shoot a video? It's so embarrassing. <laughs> like, that's the question I'm coming away with, with this. From. Yeah. It, I saw like a tiny little bit of clip of it. Yeah, like the voice didn't even sound human. It's weird in a lot of ways. Also, for some reason, they went with a bald guy as their weird standing. It kind of thing, fits a brand they have. I feel like doesn't make a lot of sense either. Past prominent members have been uh, bald white guys, which nothing against them, but maybe. But like, my, yeah. But like, if you're if you could like literally create anyone, my understanding is that. Uh, generally people with hair are, are viewed in a more positive light. So like, why not just add to, hair unless the AI algorithm uh, CGI hair, Scott. It would look too obviously fake versus this obviously fake thing they put up and then defended as a good thing. I, it's so sad. It's so sad. And I get... On the other hand, this is probably the first time anyone's talked yeah, about the Alberta that's true. party. They have, and they clearly have enough money to years? hire an AI firm. Not a great one, but one to generate a... It's not even a deep fake. It's just a fake fake. So, anyway. They're not going to be a factor in the next election. Uh, I'll keep my eye on Alberta for what happens between Smith and Notley, but... You know, you know what? They should actually just double down uh, on this and right have now. ChatGPT write their platform. Sound reasonable enough. It's just pure bullshit, and that's what most political party platforms are. Well, let's close off the show. Let's go into our quick take stories. Why don't you lead these two uh, rockets are up first? Yeah, so uh, earlier this week, Transport Minister uh, Omar Al-Gabra uh, presented a CSA plan, uh, Canadian Space Agency, not the Canadian Standards Association. Uh, 
just the, I think, more well-known CSA. Uh, basically intended to adjust our regulatory structures to spur investment in the space economy and reduce dependence on U.S. and Russian launch sites with uh, a look to basically support domestic uh, industry on this one and a domestic launch site in Canso, Nova Scotia, which is... Being yeah, built by maritime launch. Canada is not the natural choice, I would think, to launch rockets from. I think we talked about this Nova Scotia plan once before, and we're yeah, both giant like nerds who think rockets are really cool. Um, and so this is fun, but it also feels a bit to me like a grift. <laughs> like, I get there's a. I get there's a lot of demand for putting more stuff into space, and we a, do correct, like, are are going to have more stuff into space. I think at some point we're going to need to have a serious conversation as a planet about how do we make sure we can still see stars in the future, um, and the sky, but oh, and, and avoid uh, what's it the Kessler syndrome? Is it when uh, space debris just and, messes, and stuff like, starts falling from the sky too? Orbit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, although most of that stuff will burn up. But um, yeah, I think I'm a little less pessimistic on like the general idea of, hey, we should have some domestic rocket capabilities. It Granted, Canada's not the ideal spot if you want to do like a, a standard like equatorial orbit, uh, being, well, close to the equator is the best spot for that. Uh, but there's some orbits that uh, higher latitude launches work for. Uh, certainly didn't stop the soviets and yeah you're right like it's going to be uh increasingly important part of the global economy it's going to be a strategically important capability for major countries to have some form of domestic launch capability that said i'm not super confident that uh the ministry of transportation particularly under this government's going to be all that effective about uh bringing this into fruition we, we can't exactly get the trains to run in the snow or airlines to hold to the uh their legislative requirements like there is a or issue a passport in a timely manner like just there's a lot of kind of walk before you run things that kind of need to happen with transport generally and just the government overall and maybe the moonshot is not the place where uh well at least this place Minister in Nova Scotia is really only on. looking to aim for suborbital rockets so we'll not be trying to go to the moon via our own rocket launch site but presumably we're still trying to get in on the next allied mission to the moon which i haven't kept up with that yeah we right. we are part of the uh was it the artemis program yeah, we have signed on to the Artemis program. The domestic uh, manned missions, I think, are pretty much a non-starter in Canada just because of how resource-intensive they are. But we have satellites. We probably want more satellites in the future, so worth keeping an eye on this. Nevertheless, even if uh, we do think the... It makes sense to clean up some regulations and moment. make sure we're ready if companies are trying to start here, though. So I'm fine with it. And finally, uh, follow up to last week's item about uh, Ukraine asking for Canadian leopards. Tanks 
we're going to give him some. Four specifically for the uh, Leopard 2 A4 models that we have. Um, this is out of the 82 tanks that are in our inventory, although there's <laughs> some talk that the actual Peak functioning Canada military will be closer to 20. We have... Uh, yeah, we have, are not great about uh, spending what we need to actually keep the equipment we have running and making sure it doesn't fall into disrepair. Um, so yeah, this uh, follows on from Germany's announcement earlier this week that they finally have come around to granting the uh, re-export licenses for the Leopards that are made in Germany to go to Ukraine. Um, they had been dragging their feet for a while, and basically I think once the uh, US and Britain had said that they were sending their own tanks, the Germans finally relented on that after enough Allied pressure. I mean, it's it's fine. I wish we had more than four tanks to, to give them, and we're giving them more than four. Um, Wait, if we only have 20 that are functioning, we've just surrendered or, you know, are gifting a quarter. Is that a, a fifth? A fifth. Yeah, I'm tired. A fifth of our a fifth. capacity. I mean, I don't think they're going to get used anywhere else anytime soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like at this moment, the most useful place for a Leopard 2 to be is in Ukraine killing Russian tanks. That said, it we don't have a great history in Canada in recent years of getting rid of equipment and timely replacing it. The the surface to air missiles we talked about two weeks two weeks ago, I think, uh, are like a classic example of that. And yeah, let's send them all the tanks, but like we actually need to be able to replace them. And with our history of how that's gone, it's not super likely that that would happen in a timely enough manner. Also, uh, and for a little more context, uh, Ukraine has requested between 300 and 500 uh, tanks from NATO countries. About 100 have been committed at this point between all of them. Uh, I think that's likely to increase in the future, but... Still no, as much as they've asked ways for, away from providing and, them as much support as they need, I mean, and because of the, well, I, I think we'll, I think we can say they have enough uh, support when they've pushed the Russians back to the Russian border. Uh, but well, there, there is a secondary it, challenge here. It's and going I to raise take this a, question in our Slack around to do that uh, fighter jets, but it does apply to tanks as well. In that these are specialized, high tech pieces of equipment. It's not like you can just jump in one of these like you drive a rental car they are all they do take training and you don't want to like be out in your tank on the battlefield trying to figure out how to turn the windshield wipers on like or whatever the equivalent of a tank is you know obviously trying to fire the thing because the buttons are in different spots and in a language you don't speak so there is a learning curve and you know it'll be at least weeks, probably more like months before Ukraine can fully deploy most of these and probably longer for fighter jets. It, it will, yes. F fighter jets definitely will take longer. Uh, tanks are easier to train up. and But the real challenge I think is at 
going to be on the maintenance side rather than the crew side in terms of training it up. And this is uh, something where the messy politics situation in NATO has probably contributed to it. Like everyone is pretty much under the, or pretty much has assumes or believes that basically the U S and Britain committed their tanks as a way to basically pressure Germany into agreeing to the leopards because most NATO countries have leopards rather than Abrams or challengers. Uh, but the end result of it is that means three different vehicles with three different uh, <laughs> logistics chains, particularly the Abrams, uses different fuel as a jet turbine rather than a standard diesel engine. And just like they're sending 30 of those, you have to set up an entire logistics chain. Like It would be way easier if Germany had just said yes to the Leopards when they were first asked. There wasn't this big go around. They didn't have to basically have the u.s and britain kind of provide a little cover for them to make them feel better about this or anything and that's going to be one of the big challenges in ukraine it's just the logistics of all the stuff that is being committed because ukraine started this war largely with old soviet equipment and they've Shockingly. basically been supplied with nato equipment now and those two things aren't designed to fit together yes so that already adds a big challenge just if you were to switch everything over just to one system from the other set, but everyone kind of given a little bit of everything makes it even harder. Now, a lot a lot of NATO stuff is standardized, but even so, like a spare part on a, an agent and is not going to be the same as a spare part mentioned on, on the top of this, a leopard. Canada can't cases. even keep up its tanks. Now, I mean, that's got some unique Canadian issues there, but... You know, we're having trouble with parts in Canada. And we've had these tanks for a while. Yeah, it's worth... It's worth mentioning here that the 20 tanks functioning is based off... as reporting based off a statement from retired General Andrew Leslie and isn't... The government's I not going to confirm see that. reporting that it was <laughs> confirmed by the government, but... It's... The fact that it's... The fact that it's believable is kind of a problem in its own right, and... Um, even so, like, even just four ads in it to 80 is n not great in terms of what you'd actually need for stuff. Anyway, stuff to keep an eye on. Um, there will, yeah, there, there will no doubt be more. And from the sounds of it, uh, the next thing under discussion is fighter jets, as you alluded to. So, hey, maybe we'll, uh. We'll find a home for old CFA. We're not going to have anything to replace them for a while, you know, a few years. Yeah, for uh, yeah, it's what twenty twenty six is when the first uh, F thirty fives arrive, and we're only getting a handful that year. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at Patreon.com/playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palladcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.